Welcome to the Maffeo Drinks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Maffeo. In episode 31, I had the honor of meeting in person with Jonas Makila. He is a close friend and co-founder of Mother's Milk Beverages, a spirits company based in Finland. He is a Finnish commercial advisor with two decades of experience in FMCG multinationals, as well as in privately backed hospitality groups and other industries. I hope you will enjoy our chat. Jonas Makila, thanks for coming. Welcome to the Maffeo Drinks podcast. Thank you, Chris Maffeo, and welcome to Ragazzi. Fantastic. And thanks for hosting us in this uh, fantastic venue, Ragazzi, in, uh, here in Prague. I'm usually coming and sitting on the other side, but today we have a nice, uh, a nice little corner to chat. And you bring a great experience. Jonas and I know each other from 17 years, I think. 2006, I would say, yeah. yeah. And back in Finland, in Helsinki, that's where we met. And then you moved to Prague. Then after a while, I moved to Prague and I reached out to you and I said, I'm, I'm moving to Prague as well. And now we live 400 meters apart. <laughs> exactly. So Piccolo Mondo. Exactly. And in the meantime, you've been a customer of mine with Peron in Finland. And now you're a customer of mine. And now again, like I'm, I'm a customer of your restaurant. And this is a nice way to explain how the drinks ecosystem works and what I'm always talking about. Like it's not only a brand owner and a restaurant owner. There's distributors, there's big companies, there's big brands. There's a community of people moving where, like in the meantime, without knowing, we found out that we had like tens and 20, 30, 50 people that we knew. Absolutely. All friends yeah. of each other and so on. And this is the whole thing and the beauty about the industry, no? Absolutely. And you are a big marketing guy. You've been a marketing director in Mars. You've been doing all sorts of things. You have your brand, you have your vodka brands, you have a Lingoncello that you just launched and you own a restaurant. You have been working for one of the biggest restaurant group in, in the Nordics. Yeah. You can play a lot of hats in this. In this yeah, industry. no, absolutely. I love playing a lot of hats. And now I work also with a lot of other companies besides my own. But in terms of being a brand owner, now I obviously work with the liquor industry and as well as with restaurants. And it's uh, very nice to be here today and I'm looking forward for the conversation. So. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So let's start. I mean, like, since you are a, a big branding guy, how do you start? I mean, you, you launch your own brand. You work for big companies, but you also launch your own brand. So where do you start? Do you start from the liquid or do you start from the brand world? So you start straight away with that. We both know that we disagree. So I start with the story and the concept. So I know that you talk a lot about in your previous podcast. And obviously as a friend, I know that you believe in the power of the product. I think it lies probably somewhere in between. When it comes to the first spirit brand that we launched together with my partners in 2013, it was called the Puolustus Lydus, which is a heritage brand in Finland. That obviously comes from the story from the wartime and how the troops were having this uh, cognac cut with uh, vodka, which is a Finnish national drink, basically. That comes from the history. So that's all about the story. So we came with the concept. We found out that it wasn't trademarked. And basically got our, our, our IP rights and then went to the liquid. So then we actually found us a manufacturer, partners, distribution partners, and we started making the vodka and the cut cognac, Leikattu, as it's called in Finland. But we started with the store because we knew that that would be something that would be very appealing to the domestic crowd, especially. And to be honest, now with the Lingoncello that we can talk a little bit about more as well, we started with the store. So we found out that obviously Limoncello is, as you very well know, is a very traditional Italian drink that globally known. And then we have an Arctic berry called uh, Lingonberry, which has a lot of similarities when it comes to Limoncello and lemon. So it's tart, it, it's a little bit bitter, but then with sugar and good ingredients, you make it this a combination that it's a little bit of a mix of both sweetness and tartness or bitterness. And then obviously Lingoncello, as a name and as a brand is something that creates in the customer's or client's mind so-called co-creation. When you go, oh, Lingonberries, Lingoncello, oh, I got it. And the brand sticks in the mind much better than just a random brand name. Mm -hmm. So the concept was there first. And again, we knew who makes the best liquors in the country and in the market. So again, we came up with the concept, introduced the concept to them. And they basically, after making 17 years of berry liquors, they were like, a moment of silence said, why didn't we 
get this one. But again, now there are joint venture partners, Lingna, Beesbun, and Finland. So again, I think it both have to deliver. You have to have a good story to tell. And then obviously you have to have a product that delivers. But in my mind, concept comes first. That's the headline. And then it comes with the branding. It comes with the bottle. It comes with the liquid. And the liquid is just one part of it. Bring the whole concept alive. I wouldn't even say like we disagree. It's more how you put the foot in the door and explaining it to the customer. Mm. So my point is more like when somebody comes here to the restaurant, they are not interested in the Lingoncello as a brand yet. Mm -hmm. They are more interested as the liquid. So they look for a for an occasion, which could be an aperitif or it could be like a digestive or whatever you are focusing on. And then they see, okay, this is with lingon berries. Oh, actually, I like lingon berries. And this is the selling story that the waiter or the barman is, is telling. Yeah. That makes the discovery of the brand from a commercial point of view. Yeah. And then you go into the brand world because, okay, oh, actually, I want to find out more. So what are yeah. these lingon berries? I've never heard about them. And then you enter the world. So it's a little bit of a top-down and bottom-up coming together. Absolutely. Huh? And as you say, brands are built bottom-up. But I think it's both ways. First of all, as I'm a big fan of your podcast, I have to listen because you talk, tell me to. But no, I, I love them. But I think Nordics are a very good place to practice being an entrepreneur in the spirits industry because it's very hard. First of all, it's a very high tax, taxing on the spirits, but it's also a dark market. And you're not able to advertise and promote the spirits. And that's why the storytelling and especially the role of the on-trade is very high. So that's basically in, in the restaurants, in hotels, wherever you're able to have your uh, product in the bars, that's where you tell the story. But I personally think that nowadays, the storytelling starts already most of the times outside the bar, just because of social. Mm -hmm. So a good example, which we got lucky with, because uh, we started the idea of Lingoncello came to life in 2016. And before we got it in the market in March this year, it took us six, seven years, first of all, to get the product right, get the trademarks, because we invented a new word. There was zero Google hits on Lingoncello. So we got the IP rights in the major global market. And then this thing called COVID came. It wasn't the best time to start. So finally, we're now in the market. But what happened in the meantime, actually, a Limoncello, so the origin of the, the base of the idea, actually came to life. So... In 2016, Limoncello was still that bottle in the freezer that you sometimes remember to take after dinner and have a digestive from Italy. Yeah. And then suddenly, especially in the Nordics, I think it started in Sweden, Limoncello Sprit came into life. Then it came to life in Finland. It was chosen the drink of the year, I think 2018 or 2019. I cannot remember, but the exact year. But Limoncello was able to build that occasion. So, but I think again, I'm not necessarily sure whether it started from the bars recommending suddenly to have a Limoncello spritz. I think it started from some influencers, you know, maybe some recipes in the print magazines. And then obviously the early adapters in the bars picked it up and then started recommending it. But I think before people even come to the bar, they already have an idea or they might have an idea. Oh, I want to try this yeah. out because I saw this in there. I saw this in there. Um, so that plays a big role. But I think in terms of when it comes to bars, I think it's all, all about getting the bars excited and not just the, the staff excited. And it's not just about getting the owners excited. It's actually the people who work in the bars. I'm a big believer. There hasn't been that many mentioning about in your podcast about staff engagement uh, programs, staff incentives. Yeah, not yet. Uh, yeah. So I'm a big believer working for the first the Royal Restaurants and then after that with the Nordic Hospitality Partners. We saw the biggest results many times with engaging the staff in some way yeah. with, with the product. And we did it together back in the days. We did it together. That's one of uh, one chapters in our friendship and business. Yeah. Yeah. We launched the Peroni in 2015 in Finland. Yeah. Yeah. And again, what was the best result? 2015, 2016 uh, was incentives for, for the staff. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that you need to first engage the the staff, the people behind the bar, or the wait the waiters and the waitresses, yeah. Before you engage the customers, exactly. I'm a big believer in that. And let's talk about this. There is a, a difference between the hunting and the farming side of thing no? mm -hmm. of, of this. So, what you're talking about now, it's more like the farming. So the product is already listed, but 
it's not moving. Absolutely. So it needs some help on a staff incentive and motivation to the bar team and the weight team. But how does it start before? So when I want to get into your bar, how does it usually happen? Does it happen top down or bottom up? Is it you coming with your network and you select the brand or sometimes the bar staff is actually have tried it somewhere in a bar and they bring the idea to you? I think it's both. Again, I know brands are built bottom up, but I think in this uh, approach is also from top down. So Finland is a little bit particular market because we call it the tribe. We're a small country. Everybody in the industry, in the ecosystem as you talk, know each other. So I think we use together with my partners, we use a lot of our network and obviously my roles in the past got to know a lot of the restaurateurs and uh, top bars and such. I think in that sense, we use that network. But again, if there is something that is interesting, for example, from a PR point of view, people saw that in the media, they liked the idea, they tried it themselves. That's also top to bottom. So you're able to create some kind of interest or hype around the product. And then people actually order without a salesperson or a distributor visiting the outlet. Yeah. So it goes both ways. Obviously, there's the direct sales and indirect sales. And I think in the Finnish market, the indirect sales are very, very important. You have to be able to create that kind of and then obviously from the bottom up there's going to be a little bit of push as well yeah yeah when it comes to what your mantra is about it's better to have one case in a bar than 10 bottles in 10 bars i'm a big believer in that especially when it comes to small brands and small players like us obviously we don't have the resources just to scale it up and make the whole country have lingonjello in their bars like this summer when we were launching in, in Hoka, we we focused on the main outlets that we wanted to be and then for example, in Lolo, which is probably the most famous Finnish sauna restaurant in Helsinki, we had a staff incentive program for the whole summer and obviously wanted to tap into their customer base, which is very trendy and early adapters and uh, obviously tried to also build then the visibility through their social media channels and such. And then we focused on a couple other places in, in Finland as well, similar sauna restaurants where we knew that the occasion with the Lingojilla Sprit would be there. And then the results look like it was the right choice. To this point, like the, what do you think is the real reason? Like a back bar is a crowded place, no? Yes. I speak a lot about this with people, with customers, and there's a tendency to like flood the market, no? If you have the muscles and the resources, of course, because if you don't, then it's a luxury problem to have. But having one bottle everywhere and basically collecting dust on the shelf, does it makes the bottle sink? behind other bottles or like it, it doesn't just like move yeah. but if you really convince the bar owner and the bar staff to sell it then you're basically tapping on the existing loyal consumers in the restaurant and they start to really see it yeah. and then in four or five bars you actually make a big difference from PR ability perspective yeah absolutely and I think the key is that if you want to get it to a bar, make sure that it rotates off the shelf. Because if it doesn't, if, it, if you're able to get the, the, the bottle in the bar, um, but it doesn't rotate because whether it's your product or in this case, your effort, that you're not able to dedicate enough focus and uh, customer management and helping them sell, sell that product, then the next time the cocktail menu is going to be changed, the owner or the GM or the, the barman, whoever has the responsibility to look at the sales and uh, what's rotating, is going to take that and that's it. And that's very hard to get back there. So I think the key is that you're able to give the bar and the restaurant reasons why, motivate them, show them, give them tools on how to get that liquid to the class and then liquid to the lips. And then hopefully the product delivers and then these customers will order again. Mm. But I think the key is that don't put it there on the shelf and just tick the box that, oh, we got another distribution point. Or we got another out, on, on-trade outlet and then leave it there to get the yeah. dust if you're not able to help it get out of the shelf as well. Yeah. And, and talking about this, what's your experience as a restaurant owner, whether in Finland or here in, in Prague, about like sales teams coming to visit you and like helping the rotation of the brand? Mm. We discussed the stuff incentives, but that's, I would say, that's the top part. Yeah. You know? Like that's the best you can do yeah. if you have the budget, if you have a great relationship with the bar. But what can brands do when I don't know you and I'm here and I just managed to list my product to your bar restaurant and I don't yet have the relationship or the budget or 
what's your experience? Like, do they come to you? Do they yeah. visit you often? Or do they just, as you said, drop the bottle, disappear, and then that's done. We are selling ragazzi. I think this is my, one of my favorite topics. So earlier when I was working with restaurants together with my partner, we were dealing with all the, the alcohol uh, suppliers and the negotiations and then also the activations. And at that point, we had tens of restaurants. And then obviously, after forming together with the rest amongst the Nordic hospitality partners, I was, just, I was just a commercial director and I wasn't dealing with that anymore that much, but I was, I was witnessing from the marketing and sales perspective on, on what the suppliers do. Mm. And now having a restaurant of my own, I think it's the same. I think it's the same. So whether it's tens or hundreds of restaurants or just one, I think the approach from the suppliers is still the same. And also the principles on running a restaurant are the same. So just starting with the principle of running a restaurant, it's all about creating top line and then obviously cost management. And the top line comes from traffic and then average buy. Easy formula. Everybody understands that. I think that what the best suppliers do is they understand this. So what the best suppliers are like, like I just mentioned, probably best in class is Diageo. And they understand the fact that it's how you're able to either do to create traffic or how you're able to help with raising the, the average buy of the customer. Or then obviously at the end of the day, what kind of commercial terms you give and such. But I think I'm a big believer in the fact that people come to events, for example, together with Peroni, when we launched Peroni, we created Peroni Aperitivo. I still have it for the second year in my restaurant because I copy paste what we did seven years ago and brought it got Again, Peroni gets very good publicity because it's obviously uh, a main sponsor, the only sponsor in it is the signature event. Uh, people come here because we provide them program together with the Peroni. Uh, and then we get traffic and the restaurant obviously gets sales. And I think that's something that a lot of suppliers don't necessarily focus on. They're more about the usual ones that the brand manager and the advertising agency have done. A nice POS package together with some nice print ads and posters and pillows and w whatever. But at the end of the day, I think that's for me a little bit old school approach because those pillows and uh, table triangles, they're not going to be helping you to bring people into the restaurant. Yeah. Then the other thing is obviously the average buy. So how you're able to then, as a supplier, create occasions or actually sell more. And that becomes about staff training, education of them so that they're comfortable and knowledgeable on selling the product. I think it's about creating these incentive programs so that not just that people switch from another product to another product and there's no incremental sales, but actually how do you upsell and so on. And that's a big thing about also about the suppliers uh, versus the restaurant owners and the managers is that at the end of the day, restaurant owners are not interested if this gin sells or this gin sells. Seriously, then we don't care. We care. Does it bring incremental sales? Does it bring incremental profit? And that's it. So if you're just saying that my gin is better than this gin, but it doesn't show neither one of those at the end of the day you don't care yeah. and then we can talk about oh how what's the brand fed to your concept and all that but if you look at the the day-to-day -day work operations you need to bring something that increases either one or in the best case both and i think there's a big learning for a lot of uh, things and i think for a lot of the entrepreneurs it will be very beneficial if the suppliers who have all this knowledge a lot of the spirit industry, 70, 80, 90% comes from big players who have obviously a lot of power behind them and a lot of resources behind them is education. So educating the entrepreneurs and if you sell this with this price and if you sell it, this is the profit that you will make and, and helping also understand the business side of things. Yeah. And it's a, that way, I think it becomes a true partnership, not just coming to the door, leaving the case and here's a couple pillows. Unfortunately, you see that a lot, but I think it's also going to the right direction. Why do you think this is the issue? I've also built brands from the bottom up when there were small brands, but I also work with big brands that have a big footprint. No? And I think the issue is that when I discuss with top management in a big brand, there is a difference when launching a small brand that can focus on an outlet like you because it's one of the influential outlets in Prague or in Finland. And it we get the we get the allowance and we get the chance to actually do okay let's co-create something together with the top bars instead of doing yeah, like pillows and table talkers but 
when you have a big brand that is market leader, the management is going to come to me and tell me, are you doing a campaign with 10, 15 bars? Because this is what the budget allows you. And how do we scale that? And that's the whole thing from having an aperitivo, like activation, to having table talkers. Because at some point, like you split, the budget is the same and you have to divide it either in 10 bars or in a thousand bars. Exactly. And I think you hit the nail to the head. I think it comes to the fact that most of the industry is dominated by the players that are global giants. And I think that's all about what they need to do is to tribe scale. So most of the companies, I'm not saying none of them, but most of the companies don't have this slow burn approach where you're actually able to focus to 10 outlets, then to 100 and then to 1000. And I think that comes all down to execution and how you measure the execution and what are the incentives of the, the single PDs, salespeople and such. The farther I go in my career, the bigger I'm becoming a believer on the actual execution and implementation. Early in my career, I, I thought it was uh, fantastic to do these nice strategies and PowerPoints and with fancy pictures together with the advertising agencies and such. The more I get older and the wiser, I think it's, it com comes down to execution. And I think it's the fact that how do you measure the PDs? How do you measure the people that are on the ground, talking to the restaurant owners, talking to the GMs, the managers, the bars? Is it about piercing pillows or is it about how you're able to create occasion with this brand, how we're going to able to bring traffic to your bar because of this is the support you're going to receive. I'm going to come back here in not in three months or half a year, but I'm actually going to come back here in, uh, in the next couple of weeks and then help you and see how you're doing. And then we adapt what we've learned so far. But I think it's something that is, is a luxury to have when you're a small brand because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you don't have the resources to do that do the otherwise. So you have to choose 10 outlets rather than a hundred thousand outlets. But when it comes to these uh, global giants, um, it's very hard to, first of all, to get it done in one country level, then in a regional level, or then on a global level. So yeah. it's very rare approach. But I still know that there's obviously, this is a very stereotype. They're still in these global big companies that are doing the launches. There's a lot of great salespeople who are actually taking care of the outlets, even if it's taking a little bit extra time and such, but I think that's a, it's a big issue. Yeah. And I think this is a crusade that I'm doing with, with my company and with the podcast is about also creating, educating the top management in thinking this way, because in my experience, I've been working for big and small brands, big companies, small companies, and it all comes back to the same thing There's consumers at the bar ordering a drink. There's an owner that wants to make money that mm -hmm. doesn't want you just to switch gene A from gene B, they want to have an incremental revenue. They want to have new footfall and okay. basket spend, as you said. But there is a tendency to say, oh, this only works with small brands or this is only work with big brands. The, the small brands are complaining they don't have the money. Yeah. The big brands complain they need to drive scale. But I, I bring the example of the gym. No? You either do sport as a child and you grow up. Fit, yeah. or you have a fat adult and you need to go back to the gym yeah. to lose weight. It doesn't matter. You still need to be fit. That's the overall objective. Either you started fit yeah. and you, you grew bottom up organically, or you are a big fat brand that needs to get a little bit leaner and agile. Yeah. You still need to do that. And there is a lot of discussions that I'm having with top management teams that they lose track of that because they ultimately just want to look at the numbers in Excel sheets yeah. rather than actually building proper relationships and going back to the roots of the issue, which is let's focus on a target occasion. Let's focus on something that makes sense for all the links in the value chain yeah. because it's about money. It's about fitting the portfolio of the distributor and fitting the portfolio and the range of the back bar yeah. of a bar. Because otherwise it doesn't make sense. This is an Italian influenced restaurant. Yeah. It wouldn't make sense to have like products that are not fit in that occasion. But then if you have a, you know, a spritz, like all the Italian right. Amaros, those are the ones that are going to work. Then there is an element of the foot in the door that you can play with. Because I used to do it with, with some clients in New York. When, if you've got a, like a mezcal or, or a whiskey. I would come here to you and I would say, you're selling Negronis because it's an Italian restaurant. Why don't we switch it to Boulevardier with my whiskey brand? Or why don't we switch it with a 
Negroni Mezcal with my Mezcal right, brand. Exactly. And then I give you a, an, an information and I say, actually, with this, you, you, you can upcharge them. You get good margins on this versus these other products. Or even if it's not, I remember like sometimes we were having this conversation when the margin didn't actually make sense, but then it, it was becoming an, an image thing. Yeah, exactly. no? And then it's okay. I remember like we had in this conversation, like I'm willing to lose a little bit of margins on this, but you bring me something else. You bring me the prestige of the brand. Yeah. You bring me some activation. You bring me yeah. the top management here that, and I, I can showcase the venue yeah. to them. Ultimately, it's about building the system because there's yeah. no one thing that makes a brand win. Yeah. But know what you're doing and what you shouldn't do. Exactly. Kind of thing, no? I remember the example that we had in 2015, 16, when we launched Pe Pe Peroni. And obviously Peroni is buying in, in Finland was much more expensive than uh, buying with the local breweries. And, uh, and I, I, there was a substantial difference in the margin. But then you made a claim that because we sell Peroni in a smaller trap size than, uh, than the normal Finnish, Finnish beer, that the people will buy more. And obviously I think I, I took it as a challenge and, and it was true. Probably the absolute margin was still a little bit lower, given the fact that we were able to have these events. We were ha having these prestige elements around it. And I think your investments compared to our sales didn't make any sense in the beginning. But now it's all over Finland because we did that and we chose yeah. those elements. That, and that's how we started. But I think it's, it's exactly, it's not just one thing. So it's not just looking at the product margin or it's not just looking at what price you buy it in. It's all about what the partner can bring in the yeah. table. And I think also, especially talking about so entrepreneurs who have one restaurant or a few restaurants, they're very busy people. So very busy entrepreneurs and they also want support. So it's not just here's the pillows at the door, but it's actually, hey, I'm going to help you do this. When I was working for Coca-Cola was he's, here's even uh, social media assets that you can put directly to your Instagram or Facebook. Here's a social media toolkit to promote this. And here's the things that you can do. And making it very easy for the entrepreneur to make the launch or make a promotion or such. And it's actually something that I think is you can't measure with money, but a lot of business people and the restaurant owners will appreciate. And actually, now that you mentioned, I remember this, convers this conversation with Becca back in, yeah. back in Helsinki, because I, back then I was a little bit afraid of like, okay, you have a very strong visual identity and so on. Mm -hmm. So you want to create the assets yourself, no? Mm -hmm. And then you say, guys, we don't have time. We run restaurants. We don't run exactly. ad agencies. So you bring us all the things. You do the invitation. We were doing this VIP invitations. We were doing all the assets and everything. Yeah. And you asked me to do that. And, and I was surprised back then, like 10 years ago, when, yeah. when I said, okay, oh, actually, even a top place like this is asking for help on creating the assets because they don't want to do the creation, no? Because sometimes it's just like, okay, let's ask the restaurant and they are busy and they have the cool design, so they will want to do it themselves. Yeah. But in the end, it's just about, okay, let's do it together, but you actually do it because then I will run the night. You will not bring beers to the table yeah, in the evening. I'll do that, but then you bring me the people yeah. to do that. Obviously, there's an approval process and then there's a bit of control. Everybody you know, knows that. But I accept that's the approach. I many times tell the suppliers that we're not event agencies. We don't, you know, obviously we create our events, but that's not our day-to-day -day job. Our day-to-day -day job is to run the restaurants, take care of the staff and take care of the customers and take care of the business. But we're not making a Peroni or, you know, Aperol or whatever the event is. You guys, that's your product and you take care of it. Obviously, it's a, in collaboration with us, but you know, what, the easier you make it, the better it will be. And that's obviously some value that you're able to bring to the table, even if you're a smaller brand and a challenger brand. And I, I'm a big believer in that because that taps into the fact that you're bringing footfall or traffic to the restaurant. So I think my advice for them, for a lot of the suppliers and distributors would be to also focus on that. I co-ride with sales teams and like I've done it myself in the past, like firsthand. And there is always like a a lot of focus, like going back to the storytelling where mm -hmm. we started with, there is, I feel very often there is too much focus on 
the story of the brand. I've done brand trainings and it's always like, this is the story of the brand. It started in 1840, whatever, it's 1860, 1871, whatever. Let's do an event at that time, 1816, whatever. There is a lot of talking about the brand, the founder, the, the location, everything where it comes from, but then there's not enough talking about when you should drink this, no? Yeah. What is the occasion? Why am I supposed to drink this? And I love all the botanical things, but then what am I supposed to taste? And you said in the beginning, when you talk about your lingoncello, you said lingoncello, lingoncello actually have, is not like a, a game with words. It's more like it actually, there is the acidity or the, yeah. you know, like of the lemon in, it's basically the vitamin C exactly. of, of, of the Arctic. Yeah. Huh? You know, no, like I, you never had lemons until. I like that. Vitamin, vitamin C. Of, yeah. No, actually, lingonberry is a super berry. So it's yeah. a very high in the, high in terms of vitamin and antioxidants and such. So it, it has a base to it. And, but you need to explain that into the drinking experience. Mm -hmm. no? Because if I'm, for, for example, like I'm making it up now, if you tell me instead of having a spritz, have a, a lingoncello spritz, yeah. I'm going to go there with my sweet tooth. Yeah. So I'm going to sip it and I'm going to say, mm. wow, yeah. what is this? But if you explain it to me as a, a super berry, rich in antioxidant yeah. with a slight acid taste and it's uh, like sour. Yeah. And, and now I'm making this up, but I, I don't know. But then I go there and I taste it with that mindset. No? Yeah. And then I say, wow, I love this. You know? I think there's, there's a couple of things to it. So first of all, from, from the big picture, when it comes to new products and innovation, I worked a bit of, with innovation in my career. And I, I'm a big believer that the best innovations are not big revolutions or something that is totally new. They're renovations or making, enhancing something or developing a bit better. Because people in their psychology, they're cognitive misers. So they actually like to miss things. They don't tap into looking at what's new. They're looking for something that is familiar. That's how people shop and whether it's grocery stores or whether it's in a bar or whether it's they're looking at the menu, they're looking things they're familiar with and they can associate with, with their past choices. And I think that's the whole thing of Lingoncello as well. So we obviously tap into something that most of the people know who are, who are in the, in the category. And then the same thing is about creating the, the target occasion. So our signature drink is Lingoncello Sprit. And again, I'm a big fan of Aperol. I think it's probably the biggest innovation or biggest revolution to the market that has happened, uh, creating not just Aperol space, but the total category. Yeah. Personally, I found it in 2009 and been drinking many since. However, now that my palate has aged a little bit, it's a little bit too sweet. So my whole pitch to my friends, not just to customers, is that Lingoncello Spritz is still a spritz, but it's a little bit not as sweet. So it has this tartness. So it's a little bit like a Necronics in terms of the spritz. So it has a little bit more mature taste. The other drink that we obviously have is Lingroni. So we replace Campari with, with Lingoncello. And again, we're tapping into something that people already know. So we're not coming with something Lingoncello with smokiness and forest flavors from the Arctic and ice and, and such. Because again, that would be very much on the concept, but it would be very much something the ad agency mm -hmm. did on yeah. a PowerPoint presentation that looks nice. But most of the customers, when ordering from the bar and the cocktail menu, will go like, what the fuck is that? So again, I think it's tapping into this. Again, a good example that we didn't know, really we didn't know, but we basically in Finland and I think across Europe, there was a, a retro drink where yeah. you have cusses and uh, yes. sparkling wine or champagne. And we already thought about that because it's a big occasion in, in terms of, for example, for Christmas or, for example, in terms of the graduation uh, timing or such, it was to have Kiroyal. I remember mm -hmm. that from my childhood and teenage years that in, in the family parties, it was always Kiroyal. Then it disappeared, but we thought to bring it back as Ling Royal, so a sip of Lingoncello and, and sparkling wine and brings this beautiful red color. To my knowledge, I haven't watched it myself, but now Emily in Paris bought Kiroyal back, so we got lucky on that one. But again, we're tapping into something that people already know. Yeah. And actually, in most of the uh, promotion and advertising, we're not even talking about lingoncello being undigested because that's given. So that's already given. So people already know that. But again, yeah. we try to avoid the trap that limoncello was for 100 or 200 years until they now obviously were able to break yeah. out uh, by bringing limoncello's plus. Yeah. 
which is uh, the second most so spreads in, in uh, Ragazzi, for example, this summer. Wow. This, this is a great point because you're giving some examples of stuff that was like exogen to your brand building process. Not because you didn't know that Limoncello would be trending. No. You didn't know about the Key Royale and so on. But the, the thing is about making all the steps in the right place anyway, yeah. regardless. It's like I write on LinkedIn every day and Instagram and so on. And what a lot of the people that I, I follow say, they say, don't worry about the algorithm because you never find out. You can get a, an insight no. about what the algorithm wants and so on. To think about human psychology. Learn to, to understand how human think, and then the algorithm will come with it. Yeah. Know? And it's a little bit the same. There's a too much effort about spotting trends. Oh, RAM is going to be brand. next. Let's Holy launch brand. a RAM brand. And then when you realize that RAM is going to be next, you're already late yeah. to the RAM yeah. Yeah. journey. Yeah. You know? So then you need to wait another eight to 10 years for it. So it, it's about like really being focused on the steps that you have to make. And then obviously you need to be agile and tap into the opportunities of so the lim limoncello is trending. Let's push it even harder. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. But it's not that if Limoncello is trending, then with my random brand that has nothing to do with Limoncello, I'm going to make something similar to Limoncello to make it trendy. Exactly. So we, on those two things, we got lucky when it comes to marketing and branding. My university was Mars Incorporated. And uh, a lot of these things that I'm, I'm talking about today, I'm thankful for the career in Mars. And I think it's about making brands and making concepts that obviously are aspirational, in some sense, inspiring. I don't personally think that people love brands. People love their family and friends and close ones and their pets and maybe their home and summer house, but they don't love brands. But still, brands can be aspiring, inspiring, fun, have a lot of joy on, on being around those brands. But I think, though, at the end of the day, they can be too exclusive. They need mm -hmm. to be inclusive. And if you're doing a niche brand and you're trying to make it very, you know, kind of like so either you get it or you don't, that's fine as well. But in most cases, it will stay niche. Mm -hmm. So you try to make a brand that people are, there might be this like, so what is it? But then you get it. So there's this co-creation, oh, mm -hmm. Lingonjello, oh, Lingonberries and uh, Limoncello. Got it. And they remember, then you don't go and introduce Perch, Smoky, Ice, Jello, whatever, but you tap it again into something that, oh, next time I'm going to have a family event, a nice event. I'm going to, instead of Pure Royale, I'm going to do a Ling Royale, and that's why mm -hmm. I buy the bottle. Oh, actually, these guys have a QR code behind the label yeah. that gives you more ideas how to use it. But again, don't make it difficult to, first of all, yes. to remember the brand, and especially don't make it difficult on how to use the brand. You're trying to give these yeah. ideas and build occasions. I know you talk about a lot about occasions, and I'm a big believer in that. Because at the end of the day, the consumer is the same. He can have many. You talk about restaurants. I have beautiful young kids, and I go to the restaurant with them. Let's say I go on a Saturday morning for a brunch. That's a totally different occasion if I go then with my mates, uh, you know, on Saturday night to another restaurant, or if I go to a business dinner that same night or if I take my wife for a nice dinner. Those are all different kind of brands and concepts and restaurants. Yeah. But the consumer remains the same. But the occasion defines on what the choice will be. And I think that travels across brands. So I'm not a believer on this is our target group, as you said in one mm -hmm. of the podcasts, demographic 18 to 23.5, lives in an urban area, has a one pet and likes to do yoga. Don't believe in that at all. Absolutely. Um, and and I've actually got evidence of this. Like yesterday, I was having a talk with a friend of mine that has a brand and he's also selling directly on the website. And he said, he told me like, the crazy thing is that I've got my top two buyers of my product are, one is an old man, 78 years old, living in Surrey, single. Yeah. And the other one is a young girl from East London living in Shoreditch, yeah. 23 years old like students exactly you know? so who am i going to target yeah like exactly. if i need to rely on the target persona who am i going to target what brings them in common is the values of the brand is the taste experience of the brand is the fact that it's using certain botanical from a certain region yeah. that is what matters to them yeah. 
And, and I always play with some LinkedIn posts and I say, don't talk to me up 15 minutes about the botanicals, to your point, is tell me what am I supposed to taste? Am I supposed to taste bitterness, sweetness? Is it sweeter than, is it smokier than, yeah. is it less smoky? How am I supposed to drink this? And then it goes back to the fact that for all brands, and I've been thinking about this a lot, there's always a traditional occasion and a modern occasion. Yeah. You know? So if you, you mentioned it before, no? you said, I'm not talking about the digestive because that's a traditional occasion and everybody knows that. So if somebody picks it up from the shelf in Alco, they're going to drink it as a digestive. If you don't say anything to them, they don't know the brand. They just picked it up from randomly from the shelf. Yeah. Then if they've seen it in Lulu or in Teatri or in Ragazzi, then they know how to drink the brand because the people behind the bar are explaining them and that the menu is explaining to them how to drink it. Yeah. And that's the modern take. So very often there is this misinterpretation about where you want to bring the brand and what the pool, the volume pool may be with digestives. Yeah. But the brand building long-term pool will be with aperitifs. Exactly. Exactly. That's absolutely right. And what is your take about like the, I was discussing in another episode that you will, you will see like the, the whole thing about Byron Sharp, and I know you, you learn about a lot about everything with your times in, in Coca-Cola and Marx, yeah, yeah. about this like building distribution. Should you expand your occasion or should you focus on the on one single occasion? I think, first of all, I think I took a Byron's course at that. I, I think at that point, it was called Creating Strategies of Desire. I, I took my first course in Marx, I think it was 2008. I'm a big fan of uh, Byron and his work and Aaron Barrett. Fast Institute works. And a lot of the things that I believe in marketing are based on the learnings and the findings of that team. So kudos to them. I don't think it's about taking one target occasion. I think it's about, again, being wide enough, being inclusive enough. Okay. So again, if you take, I was listening to the Aquavit podcast that you have. If you just have Aquavit as a snaps, and it's only to that occasion when you know, you're having the toast or you're having that song or you're having your university party or whatever, and that's the only time you take Aquavit, it's fine if the occasion is big enough. But if you want to expand the brand, you have to create new occasions. You have to give uh, the, the people new ideas on how to use the brand and expand away from that basic core mm. occasion. And I think the story with Limoncello that just happened with a few years, past few years, I think it's a great one. It has been able to build another occasion that is obviously can be very big or mm. is already quite big. I think there's a danger also if you tap into just one target core occasion and mm. you keep on pounding that because then you might be able to establish it, but you, then you establish it almost too strongly and then you're stuck with it. Mm. However, if that occasion is big enough, so you know, you have it after having a meal every time you have it after the meal, and then you have three meals a day and then every time that so if the occasion is big enough, obviously that's okay. Yeah. But if we're talking about challenger brands or brands that are just launching and just going to one target occasion, I think there's a risk risk to it as yeah. well. I think it's about putting the foot in the door on trying something. Huh? So I always take the example like okay, start with something, start with a spritz. Yes. Or start with there. And then see what works and what resonates. And then some bartenders may actually tell you, I don't think it works really well with spritz because people try but don't like it. But let's do it in a Negroni or in an Americano. Yeah. And I think it would work much better. Well, yeah. then, and then always use the, let's say, the classic cocktails because signature cocktails are coming and going. Yeah. Like the, there is a lot of creativity there. Yeah. But then the classics are classics. And exactly. most of the people will always rely on the classic, whether they are old classics like the old fashion or new classics like the penicillin. When they are classic, everybody knows what to expect from it. Yeah. And then you can try and see different things. And I always say, if you communicate one occasion, it doesn't mean that you're stuck to it, yeah. but this needs to be clarified yeah. for sure. And absolutely. And I, just to give one more example on the risk of just going for one core occasion, if you go with Lingonjello Spritz in Finland, you know, that occasion lasts for, if we're lucky, less than two months. But there's a risk to it. So thus, you need to have the Ling Royale or the Ling Angelotonic yeah. or 
uh, lingroni yeah. or obviously digestive as well. Mm. But if you just, uh, we were stuck on the lingonsole spritz, 10, 10 months out of the year, we wouldn't have an occasion. So again, that's, uh, you need to be aware of the market and uh, be aware of the risk on, on building an occasion or just one occasion. The occasion often gets misinterpreted that it, it can be wider or smaller, like depending how you look at it. Mm. Like it can be a cocktail or one occasion can be a Negroni. Yeah. Or an occasion can be an aperitif, or it can be a brunch, or it can be during dinner and after dinner. Like you can be flexible with it as long as it serves your narrative. No? Absolutely. I, w- I was discussing with Steven Grass on the podcast, the creator of Hendrix Gin, yeah. among other brands. And, and what he was saying is that when Hendrix started with the, the cabinet of curiosities, so the line yeah. extensions, and they are limited editions every year. Yeah. The occasions are like crazy occasions yeah. because that's a crazy brand. So Lunar has got like moon bathing yeah. as an occasion. Yeah. There was another one that had, I can't remember the name now, but it had a flowery summer evening party. Yeah. You can play with certain things as long as you use that to communicate something yeah. and to put the foot in the door into that kind of occasion. Yeah. Like that one would be perfect to use in weddings, barbecues, like stuff that you do in a garden exactly. during summer. Yeah. But then the core brand would carry on Absolutely. throughout the year. Exactly. No? Exactly. And there, there must be flexibility on that without becoming too much of an eco chamber kind of thing, especially in the whiskey world. This happens a lot. No? It, it becomes so niche and your community and your network is so much into the same things that you like. Yeah. That it becomes an isolation, no? Yeah. And then it becomes, oh, this is the stuff for 10 people that really, I don't know, super pitted whiskey. Yeah. But then nobody's going to drink it. It will be the craziest thing that you give me as a finish after a dinner at your place. Yeah. But, but you will have that bottle for 15 years exactly. because it would just be those two centiliters that you give because this is really strong. I think at the end of the day, the, the people and the customers will create their own occasions. The main thing is that you're able to get them to buy that bottle to their home. And it's not one of those bottles that are back at uh, your bar cabinet. And then you move houses and it comes with you. And then eventually you throw it away because you never use it. Both of us probably have those bottles. But I saw a great kind of idea on one of these LinkedIn uh, spirits groups is that create also recipes that your alcohol can be part of. For example, in tiramisu, playing a role in there. Can it be lingonjello tiramisu? Can it be lingonjello cheesecake? Again, a little bit different target audience, yes. a little bit different uh, media that you're able to get penetration through, get a better reach. But then if, if the person who's cooking at home or baking at home makes a cheesecake, they're going to buy that lingonjello and then say, that's the reason that they first buy the bottle, but then say, hey, you can use this rather than baking as well. At the end of the day, the main thing is that the bottle gets out the shelf, yes. gets into the bar cabinet, and then it's being used for whatever the occasion, whether it's baking or having a... Uh, digestive at the end of the meal or whether it's making spritz in the, in the garden, who cares? Yes. You know? um, as long as that bottle is there when it's being used. The same in bars, obviously. It, it comes to the fact that you need to build what they call social carrots. Uh-huh. thing to talk about to your friends. The brands that I consumed the most were brands that I got them in- instantly and the story and the liquid together were so cool that I could show off. And tell the story yourself. And tell the story in an easy way without having to remember the year it was born or anything like that. So we were discussing it with Steven Grass again, like he has a great thing in his book, Brand Mysticism, about he brings examples like the brand world of Tolkien or the brand world of The Simpson. Yeah. And he said like, a brand needs to be like The Simpson. So... The Simpsons, if you watch it for the first time, it's funny. You get it. It's not, to your point, exclusive because yeah. you understand who's the father, who's yeah, the mother, yeah. who's the child, yeah. who's the teacher, and so on. But then the more you watch it, the more you understand nuances. And then you may watch back an episode and then it's like, I didn't get that the first time I watched okay. it. But it builds up, like he calls it, Stephen calls it like the onion. Yeah. But you don't talk about overall family tree of the Simpsons in the first episode because like people need to fully understand it otherwise they will not understand anything anymore yeah there needs to be a lot of simplicity so where we're aiming for example with Lingon Jello 
a lot is on the international markets, not just obviously different uh, markets, but also in terms of duty-free. So we believe that, for example, now it's in the already in the Helsinki airport, it's already in the Baltic cruise liners, where, whereas, again, if people have time to spend a little bit with the product, they see Limoncello or Ar- Arctic Limoncello. Okay, this is a perfect thing to take home to whether it's Asia or to another European country or whenever, and then tell that short story yes. that is easy to understand to your friends. And people love to do that. I work a, a, bit, a bit with wines as well. And in the wine industry, it's most of the products and the concepts are exactly about, so this was coming from uh, this hillside and this was the soil and this year and all that. And a lot of times the, the wines that people are talking about are, I visited this vineyard and actually the owner is this and he has a funny dog and that's it. They, they want to tell simplistic stories yeah. uh, rather than telling very detailed product information yeah. or how, when the harvest was or, or such. But I think it's about that people are able to repeat that story very easily. Yeah. And also one of the points, and maybe we can also talk about this, is the fact that for me, like I talk a lot about the fact that you have to win. So for example, to your Lingoncello, you need to win in Finland yes. to be credible. Yes. Yes. So it's not that you go to Germany and then nobody yeah. know, nobody yeah. sees yeah. it in Finland, yeah. nobody knows it in Finland yeah, and yeah, so yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. And it's connected to the thing that it's useless to expand to... Mm-hmm. 100 bars yeah. if you haven't cracked those 10 yeah, bars. I agree. You know? okay. So yeah. it's useless to do a distribution deal in 20 markets if you cannot follow up yeah. in those markets. Yeah. And Jonas, so let's talk about the, the Lingoncello, how it's taken footprint in Finland, building into the consumer minds, getting nice distribution. You are a distributor also in Alco, if I understood correctly, in the Finnish Monopoly. What's next for the brand? How do you bring that brand to the next level? You probably started in Helsinki. Are you already distributing the rest of Finland? Are you expanding to different markets? Like this is something that our listeners are always interested in and struggling with in how to manage the one palette type of the conversation. So I think in terms of one of the things that I learned from the big corporations already talking about the scale is that you have have to have a lot of patience in the launch. Many times the big corporation launches, which I also have done uh, there about, what are the results in 12 months? Whereas for me, the launch should be at least 36 months. So we started six months ago officially. We already had established, uh, uh, at the end of last year, we established a good distribution in the Monopoly in Finland. And then we launched in March. And after that, we've been obviously building both distribution and trying to also build awareness through some limited PR and such, uh, which obviously in the dark market is, is quite important. I personally think what I think you also say in your podcast that you have to be credible and in your own base market first before then expanding to other markets. And that's obviously the base that we want to build as well. So now we have a pretty good summer um, behind us. And now we're focusing on the festive season at the end of the year, talking to outlets, talking to obviously to distributors. We are, as I mentioned already before, we're also focusing on the duty-free, both the airport as well as the cruise lines, which are quite big sales points in Finland and in the Baltic area. That's also the duty-free is very important for us in terms of building awareness because already learned in, in my Mars days in chocolate, tax-free is a great place to introduce new products because people have more time and they also yeah. are more in a buying mode. They're willing to test new products and such. And that obviously, again, they're built, uh, bringing that bottle back home and showing it to their friends and saying, telling that story that they hopefully learned. So we're building still that. Now we're focusing in Finland to, to build the distribution in Monopoly further. We're focusing on getting new outlets, but again, not with the huge big band approach, outlet by outlet and making partnerships with them. And then eventually, which we already naturally started simultaneously, we're going into the international markets. We have some sales already abroad and uh, now we're um, in negotiations uh, mainly to Asia. Uh, and then uh, a major European market where we want to expand. But again, I think we need to be first credible, authentic on building our home market and then uh, expanding more more further. It wouldn't make sense if I came to Finland and I didn't see Lingoncello anywhere. Yeah. Then it would become a gimmick. So it, it's this kind of thing like how, how do you work with expansion? So when... Because we discussed this before on, on the bars example, whether at each stage of the, whether you're selling one bottle, one case or one pallet, the mechanics are the same. No? So 
instead of focusing on 100 bars, focus on five bars, then 10 bars, then 20 bars, because if you cannot cover them, it's useless. No? If I sell my brand in a random city in Czech Republic, and I don't want to drive there to visit, the owner is going to forget about me. Mm. So how do you do that in the launches? So when you do international, you need to look for a distributor, you need to look for someone, despite not having the consistent presence yeah. there. How, how do you do that? And how many countries, how many markets are you planning to, to start at the same time? Because all these deals take time. Yeah. And maybe sometimes they all line up at the same time and you're basically launching in five countries at the same time, but you just started the negotiations like two years ago, three years ago. And then all of a sudden it's shit. Now it so, happens at the same time. Fortunately, we have great partners. So Lingnet Peace Partners, so the oldest alcohol company in, in Finland. Second oldest family company in Finland since 1852, if I remember correct. They're working as our sales and marketing and distribution and manufacturing. Obviously, as brand owners, and also because of my background, we talk a lot about the strategies together, our monthly meetings and such. But they have more of the experience because they've been doing this for ages, especially in Asia with the berry liquor. So they have a good knowledge and uh, experience on this. However, I think it's all about distribution game. And it's all about choosing the right distribution partner. And I call it a little bit of paradox when choosing the distributor. Because at the end of the day, you want your brand to be their top of mind and their priority and their focus point. But it's not true if you're not able to give them massive resources. So you're going to be a challenger brand, not just against the competition, but also in the distribution portfolio. So it's a little bit of, like I said, a challenge because you want to choose big enough distributor that has enough market power and network and distribution points and a good team. But however, you don't want it to be too big so that you're not straight away at the bottom of the portfolio. So it's a very fine art on choosing that distribution partner that both has good presence in the market, mm. can do things for you and your brand, but then at the same time is not considering you to be the defocused product in the portfolio. And if you have to choose one now, making it extreme, like which one would you go for? I would definitely go for the focus that you get the focus from the distributor. It's for a smaller one and give them a chance and start doing a brand a bar by bar. Because no matter what the market power is, if you're not the one that their salespeople are talking about and they forgot to even mention you or the typical 30 slides in the deck and then you're the last slide in the deck. Oh, we have this thing as well, but also. It's, not, it's probably not for you. I know how, how it works. And no, even in big yeah. corporations, yeah. when you have your own brands, absolutely. if you have a smaller brand, it's very hard to get the, the focus. And this is a great example, actually, what you bring in, because the, there's two points. Like the first one is about the internal competition. No? Yeah. We're discussing that no matter what happens outside of you, focus is the first thing. So I remember like back in the days when I started working with Peroni as a marketing manager, nobody cared about Peroni inside the organization, exactly. not even outside, inside the organization. I was sitting in Pilsen, in the Pilsen Rukwell Brewery, and I was a bit of a joke because I'm like the Italian guy in, che in the Czech lands, the land of beer, trying to sell an Italian beer yeah. and trying to get the share of my yeah, people. You're an but, alien, yeah. But then all of a sudden, like then for many reasons, the managing director was Italian, Peroni was becoming a success, it was good margins. It was starting to build up bit by bit, slowly. Yeah. But I was never losing the focus on like, I don't care like if these people don't care about me. I carry on and I do my stuff all, all the time. Yeah. Because at some point, the luck, like they say, you know, luck is when yeah. opportunity meets, meets preparation huh? and yeah. hard work. So at some point they will notice me and then they notice me. So this is the same thing that happens in big companies. No matter if you are the brand manager on the smallest brand with 25,000 euros budget for the whole year, do the old things that you have to do and then do the internal PR. And then at some point your brand will become like, oh, actually... We are all declining on this brand, but what's the brand that is growing 100%? Oh, let's talk to this guy or, or yeah. girl. When I was in working for the big corporations and having a team of my own, I always put the toughest guys and girls on working the challenger brands. Yeah. Not just because I knew that they were good at it, but also helped to, them to develop. Because 
at the end of the day, it's easiest to yeah. manage those big brands that are on the market and established, have big budgets. The trick is how do you make those challenger brands? First of all, your internal organization to fall in love and then to be engaged when the results don't come straight away. Yeah. And that's the key. And if you're able to do that, you obviously become a star. That's and I think it's a journey that most of the people in their career should take if they're working in marketing, because that's when you have to have resilience, you have to have creativity. And I think it starts with making the troops hype, making the troops believe in the product, make the troops go for the extra mile for the little guy, whether it's your, whether it's your own brand or whether you're in a distributor and you're the challenger brand in the portfolio. That's something that you have to do day to day. Yeah. But obviously I'm not on that working on day to day, but I think our partner will, will work on that together with the distributor. Yeah. And the key is again, like whether it's in a bar, as we discussed, there needs to be something that is interesting for the distributor as well. Yeah. Does it complement my portfolio? Does it bring something that I don't already have? I have a gin in my portfolio. Now I have Lingongello. Okay. We can sell Lingoroni together. We can package and bundle them together. I don't have occasion for a spritz. I don't have occasion for that. Just, okay, now I can serve the, the bar, the full package yeah. for every occasion. Uh, again, this brings, I sell one bottle of this. This brings me 15% better margin than I sell for this. I can incentivize the sales speedies to, to push my product. It's the same kind of approach, again, as you have when you're talking to the on-trade. Again, you need to find those angles. Yeah. And, and that's the key so that you stay relevant, so that you are interesting from the very beginning and you can trust on the fact that they will sustainably support you. Yeah. Also like building on opportunities that you may spot. Exactly. Like never stop observing and analyzing things because sometimes it could be, imagine like, it could be like, oh, we are out of stock of Aperol in this market. Oh, I've got a solution for you. Like you can use my product instead. And, and then you get an easy way in just because of you observes that there was something yeah. or, or maybe like the owner doesn't like to do upper spritz in yeah. that bar because oh everybody has it i don't want to have it in my bar or, or, i remember back in the yeah. days in in the monopoly in system bulaget in Sweden, yeah there was one particular summer that we sold hell of a lot of miller yeah because corona was out of stock exactly they had some challenges with corona and then we had an extra i don't know like double, triple digit that summer, yeah. just because everybody were looking for a similar brand, like transparent glass, beer, light beer, and so yeah. on. And, and we sold that way. You can look at it in the trends. So if you look at Aperol, obviously huge success globally, but then you look at it, some of the more mature markets where Aperol has been launched years ago, it starts to, obviously there still might be growth, but it starts plateauing. And then the whole spritz category has, starts to grow. Okay, what do I have in my portfolio that I can offer spritz to my clients? Yeah. Even when we're looking into different markets now, we look at players that have limoncello in their portfolio. Mm. Because then we can say, okay, you have a limoncello. Now you can tap into, you can also then offer limoncello. So they understand yeah. the game already. So I think it's, or you go to houses that distributors that have good prosecco, that is a value prosecco for the on-trade. And mm. you say, now you can bundle these two. Or yeah. you do it with gin, as I mentioned. Yeah. So again, what are those angles that distributors, it makes it easy for, for them to sell more. And also like to, to your previous point, like the, the second point that I didn't mention before, like on, on going with a too big distributor is that the people often forget is that you need a lot of cash. You need to yes. be really well funded because I always say, be careful what you wish for, mm -hmm. because if you grow too fast, you need to subsidize that growth yeah. and it's like, who's going to produce, you need to order bottles, you need to order yeah. the brand, you need to consider the payment terms that are going to come slowly and slowly yeah, exactly. because okay, they're going to pay in three months. These other guys are going to yeah. pay in another three months. So you are paying in advance of six months or nine months kind of thing. Yeah. So do you have the muscle or is it better to grow more slowly at the beginning yeah. and take care of that? No, that's absolutely right. And I think it's, it's also uh, where you are in your launch. Where are you in your brand journey? So obviously in the beginning, when you're establishing new distribution collaborations, you don't have the negotiation as you will have when the brand is established. There's a big pull from the market. So in the beginning, obviously with the distributors, you might have to do a deal that the percentage is higher, but it covers marketing and sales. 
then you when you become more established even with the same distributor you can change those terms and say that now we can take this marketing and sales part and cover the investments your margins will be lower but in the very early stages of the launch when you're not having massive resources as a challenger brand you don't have that negotiation power in the beginning so absolutely true sometimes it's it can be misleading because you may have some power because you may have relationship with a distributor, yes. you may have contacts. And so it could be, let's say, easier than with another brand that doesn't have any contacts. Yeah. Yeah. But then you're in trouble because all of a sudden, like I discussed with some brands and then they said, okay, actually a supermarket chain wanted our product. Yeah. What do we do? And we had to say no, because yeah. we couldn't just afford it. Yeah. We couldn't afford those shipments, that production and those kind of things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. No, and I, I know also brands that have been in that situation. And to be honest, let's wrap it up here. And I give you some space to tell our audience where to find you as a person and then as an entrepreneur and your brand. And where do people find you? So obviously, easiest easiest way to find is uh, from uh, Ragazzi, which is a, is a restaurant, family restaurant in, uh, in Prague, in uh, beautiful Vinarari. Um, then obviously, you can find me in LinkedIn. Jonas uh, Makila. Uh, if you're interested in uh, any collaboration um, opportunities, you can contact me or Lingnet Bispanen in Finland. Uh, we also have a website for Lingoncello, lingoncello.com. So there you can learn more about Lingoncello. And that's about it. And obviously, you can go to uh, Chris with his massive network, and uh, I'm sure he can connect us. So it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Next time, uh, I think this is the first time in our 17 years of friendship that we're just drinking water. So next time we I need to have some drinks because this is very odd. And I guess it's the morning. So <laughs> that's thanks, the, that's thanks for having me, Chris. And absolutely. Uh, that's the challenge with the morning. Exactly. That we stick to water and coffee. Exactly. And, uh, so we'll have the chance. We'll next, next recording, we'll do it in the evening. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Jonas. Thank you. That's all for today. If you liked it, please rate it and share it with friends. And come back next week for more insights about building brands from the bottom up.